following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.ag. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sportsnet. Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. And it is my great pleasure and honor to have as a guest today, Chris Dempsey. Chris, as some of you may know, was one of the three co-founders of No Boston Olympics, a nonprofit that believed that the 2024 Summer Games uh, would be a financial mess for Massachusetts taxpayers. They've succeeded uh, in doing so, and those Summer Olympics are now scheduled to be in Paris. Chris, welcome to the show. Mike, it's great to be on with you. So, Chris, uh, let's go right off the bat. You were successful, you and your group. Right now, today, you walk around Boston. Um, are you a hero or a villain? <laughs> I certainly like to think that uh, as Bostonians look back on the conversation we had about the Olympics, that there's kind of a collective sigh of relief that we didn't move forward with it as a city. You know, the polling on this has been really interesting. When the idea of the Olympics first came up in Boston, the polling was relatively favorable and that most Bostonians thought that this would be a good idea to move forward with the games. But what we saw through the course of the conversation is that as more and more people learned more about what an Olympics would actually entail for the city of Boston and the state of Massachusetts, they became less likely to support the games. And by the end of it, support was down in the 30% level, 35% level, when it had been actually much higher in the 50s earlier in that conversation and the polling that's been done since then. So in the wake of the decision has all been in our favor in that the majority of Bostonians thought it was a good idea. We said no to the bid and it's a relatively small minority that wished we had gone forward. And taking a moment to thank our supporters, Varidesk, Amica Insurance and Rocket Mortgage. More about these companies later in the show. Now, you're a Brookline, Massachusetts native and currently uh, the director of transportation for Massachusetts, a nonprofit coalition of 50 organizations focused on transportation policy and, and backed by the Barr Foundation, a very respectable foundation. Um, I know transportation, based on what I've read about you, was always something that, you know, uh, you were passionate, uh, passionate about. Um, how did you get involved in this movement? Well, I had worked in transportation for Governor Deval Patrick from 2007 to 2010. And what I saw in my time in government is that there was just so much that government needed to be doing better than we were doing it uh, when I was there. Improvements to our transit system, improvements to our road system. Uh, and that's just in transportation. There's obviously so many more things in education and healthcare and taxation policy that government needs to be doing better. And I thought that the Olympics were going to be really an enormous distraction from some of those core fundamental issues that were going to make our lives better as citizens and residents of Massachusetts. You know, instead of being focused on education or transportation, 
we were going to get focused on questions like how big should the Olympic Stadium be and how are we going to sell tickets to it? And is there going to be a profit or a loss based off of all of the economics of the Olympics? And frankly, those are, are not important questions that I thought our mayor and our governor should be focused on. Um, and, and unfortunately, that's what happens when you host the Olympics is that that becomes the civic conversation and the focus of attention at the expense of so many other important things. So that was one core reason for me to get involved, but there were many others. I mean, fundamentally, you're talking about a project that costs somewhere between, between 10 and $20 billion. It only generates somewhere around four to $6 billion of revenue, and it's taxpayers that are left to make up the difference. And so that's why you've seen in city after city, these massive deficits where the government has to step in and provide those resources to make up the difference, all for a three-week event that economists say has very little long-term economic impact. Um, it does not produce long-term jobs, does not produce long-term economic growth. And so it's a really poor investment from a city's financial perspective. In some ways, the argument that I hear from the proponents of hosting the Olympics is similar to when I hear arguments for hosting a Super Bowl and uh, pre uh, preceding that, is, of course, is always the politicians who support massive taxpayer dollars to go towards a new stadium. Say, so, you know, you build this stadium, we're going to get X billions of dollars in economic benefit. And, and those studies uh, really can be taken apart and they're proved so they're proven so faulty. You know, they never basically uh, account for the fact that there would be a lot of people that would be staying in those hotel rooms anyway, even if there wasn't uh, a Super Bowl there. This this is sort of that for the except writ large, if you will, because the cost is so much more. Mike, you're exactly right. And as you look at a place like Boston, our hotel occupancy rate is above 95% during the summer months. So we are already packed to the gills with tourism. And if the Olympics had come, they would have just displaced some of those tourists that would have come for our history or for our museums or our universities or all the other wonderful things that make Boston such a special place. But more to the point, you are exactly right that the studies that are often shown around and um, said to reflect, you know, multipliers of economic benefits based on hosting a Super Bowl or building a stadium are almost never true because they're never independent. Um, these are studies that are produced by the boosters of these events to try to justify taxpayer expenditure. When you look at the independent studies by academic economists that don't have a stake in the game, they find that there is very little economic impact from an, hosting an Olympics. Um, and certainly it is not any sort of economic impact worthy of the billions and billions of dollars that need to, need to go in from the public to pull these events off. You know, it kind of reminds me uh, many centuries ago when I was in business school, uh, my economics professor said that uh, he had a buddy who was uh, employed by AT&T. This was before it broke up into all the different bells. And he said his only job was when AT&T had to go to court uh, to argue for a rate increase. This guy, this economist's job was to go there and to create such a complicated mathematical argument as to why that nobody else wanted to take the stand against him because they wouldn't understand what this guy was was talking about. You know, it was it, it, it gets but it really is not that complicated an argument. And, and as you pointed out, if you go back 
and you look at the Olympics, you almost always see two things. The cost to the host city always seems to perhaps double or even more than when they the, the, the initial cost that they promote. And secondly, it almost always loses money. And, and I wanted to ask you, Chris, before you got involved, I mean, were you also like a sports fan? Did you watch a lot of Olympics? Did you also, aside from the argument in terms of the opportunity cost of time and money for, for what your city and state should be doing, did you happen to have a feel for the basic economics of Olympics past? Yeah, well, so Mike, the first thing I'd say is, look, I am a sports fan, and I was about 10 years old when the Dream Team played in Barcelona. And of course, being in Boston, I was a huge Larry Bird fan, right? So, I mean, the Olympics are a special thing. And nothing that we ever did in our campaign was meant to diminish the athletes or to diminish, you know, how exciting and special some of those sporting moments can be. At the same time, you have to think of hosting the Olympics as a rational public policy decision and not as an emotional one. And we were lucky to have had some exposure to some of those concepts. You know, I think everyone has now seen over the years the the images of empty stadiums in Athens or Beijing that are basically sort of left to fall apart because they don't have a use after the games. And it's that imagery that that made us sort of dig in a little bit deeper. And once we got in under the surface of what hosting the Olympics would be, we just found some really disturbing things. It's, for example, this taxpayer guarantee, the fact that the International Olympic Committee requires the host city mayor to sign a contract that says the host city is responsible for those overruns. And the minute the mayor signs that document, it's the city taxpayers that are on the hook, not the IOC. So the IOC has very weak incentives to have games that are on budget because they are not the ones picking up the bill. If anything, the IOC has an incentive to actually have an extravagant budget because what what they want to do is they want to have a flashy historic, memorable games that look great on television, that build the Olympic brand and that please the sponsors at uh, media companies like NBC and others that pay for these international broadcasting rights. And so from the IOC's perspective, the bigger, the better, the more grandiose, the more they're doing for the Olympic movement. But again, that all comes at the cost of the host cities. And it's why you're seeing more and more cities around the world start to drop out of the Olympic process. The citizens in those cities are realizing that this is just fundamentally not a good deal and they're better off saying no to the Olympics and allowing themselves as a city to say yes to so many other things. And also, if you, if you read on this, you could see that another reason why they like the budget to be high is because then that's the next one will be a step up. You know, if, if, if the Olympics in, say, Boston is $10 billion dollars, and the next one, four years later, they're not going to go down to eight. You know, that one's going to go up to 12, 15. It's, it's, you know, it's a continual trend of increasing. So they always want it to be high because the next one's going to be higher. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, a constant movement because, as you pointed out, the higher that goes, then the more that they hope they can command for, for uh, sponsorship revenue uh, for the Olympics. Well, I want to ask you, Chris, uh, Chris real quickly, too, is when you – how does the uh, – in relation to the cost, you mentioned, you know, the mayor signs the document. How much power does the city have over the cost generally or, or specifically in the case of Boston, what would it have been, versus the IOC? Well, so one of the things that happens here, Mike, is that the relationships between the IOC, the host city, and the bid committee or the host committee become very murky. 
the IOC wants that guarantee from the city, but at the same time, they like to think of this as sort of independent of the political process. And so they create this host committee entity that is supposed to be sort of just focused on the games and independent of, of these political questions. And, and that's really challenging and, and obviously and disturbing in some cases because in many cases, and this was true in Boston, the folks that are leading the bid committee, which becomes the host committee once the games are awarded, are often some of the folks that would benefit the most from having a very expensive games. And so an example in Boston is that the head of the bid committee was also the owner of the largest construction company in Massachusetts. And clearly he had incentives to have a bid that was gonna be extravagant and cost a lot of money. Even after he recused his firm from bidding on Olympic projects, this was gonna be good for the construction industry overall. And for, from his perspective and from the perspective of his colleagues and others on the bid committee, the bigger, the better. And again, that's all at the expense uh, or, or in contrast to the incentives of regular taxpayers who would have been very comfortable, I think, with a financially responsible games, but who over time realized that the bid that was being presented in Boston was just not financially responsible. And that, that's true because the bid committee got into this gamesmanship that you were describing earlier. The way to think about the IOC is really they're conducting an auction and they want as many bidders in that auction room as possible and they want to bid up that price as high as they possibly can. So they want Paris to be competing against Los Angeles, to be competing against Johannesburg, to be competing against Beijing, all of whom are trying to win this bid and promising more and more. It's, it's the opposite of what the IOC has been left with in more recent years where very few cities have wanted to bid and there's been only one or two entries for each of these games, which tends to give the bidding cities a little bit more power and a little bit more ability to negotiate a better deal. And frankly, I think that's what Los Angeles was somewhat effective in doing when they were awarded the 2028 games. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Sports Money podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask why. Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply. Understand fully. Mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. Equal housing lender. Licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Interesting. In some ways, it's, it's like the World Cup, you know, uh, FIFA and the World Cup, because unlike, say, the NFL or Major League Baseball, where you have a full season every year, you know, when you're talking about the Olympics or the World Cup, I mean, 
this is your revenue source. You know, every four years you have a Winter Olympics. Every four years you have a Summer Olympics, which is the big moneymaker, rainmaker, if you will, of the two Olympics. And in the World Cup, it's one event every four years. So you better get as much as you can, as much as you can for the broadcasting rights, for the sponsorship rights, and, and, and for hosting the city. Because that's what you're going to have for your funding for four years. So th- that's, that's also, I think, part of their incentive. You know, Chris... Uh, could you please uh, take a moment and take the audience through what your experience was like from start to finish with working on this movement in terms of how you went about finding information, the, the, the sort of the roadblocks uh, you came across, and, and how you overcame them uh, to get to the end, which was really when, when most people saw that this was not a good thing for Boston. Sure. So the history of No Boston Olympics starts in a living room in the Beacon Hill neighborhood of Boston in November of 2013. And back then, there was really very little discussion of the games. There had been a couple articles in the newspaper and the Globe and the Herald about how some folks were considering a bid, um, but not many people were taking it seriously. And frankly, that was true for the rest of 2013 and really all of 2014. There were sort of some groups that thought this was a legitimate and a real bid, but a lot of people that just said, you know what, the United States Olympic Committee is never going to choose Boston over Washington, D.C. or San Francisco or Los Angeles, which were the other bidding cities. And so a lot of folks weren't taking it seriously. Um, But our group really saw that, in fact, Boston was probably the world's frontrunner as early as 2013. And that's true for two reasons. One is that whichever city was coming out of the process for the 2024 games from the United States was likely to be the favorite because it has been a long time since we've had the summer games in the U.S. It's been since Atlanta in 1996. And the USOC and the IOC, which had been feuding over funding rights, had finally settled. And so things were looking good for the USOC. But then the question is, why choose Boston over Los Angeles or San Francisco or D.C.? And the answer there is, is sort of twofold. One is that Boston is is big enough to host the games, but small enough that the games can really dominate the city and that the USOC can kind of wrap up all of the political support that it needs. Unlike in a place like DC, where there's so many players and you've got Congress involved and it's just kind of a political morass. But more importantly, and most importantly, Boston's on the East Coast. And the East Coast in the United States is the most valuable time zone in the world. When you have events happening during the day on the East Coast in Massachusetts, they are in prime time in Europe, which is the second most valuable television market. When they're happening in prime time in Massachusetts on the East Coast, they're obviously in prime time in the U.S., which is incredibly valuable, and they're still during the day in L.A. And when they're happening late at night, in the East Coast, they're still catching that California time zone. And so this is ultimately about putting on a great television show. That's what the Olympics are. That's how most of us experience them. And Boston was incredibly well positioned geographically to host the games, despite the fact that we didn't have all the venues built and despite the fact that it was going to cost us 10 to $20 billion to host it. From the IOC's perspective, we were very well positioned. And so we saw that happening, and, and what happened over the course of 2014 is it remained sort of a relatively quiet conversation. People weren't taking our opposition very seriously at all. They were taking the bid slightly more seriously, but they thought that it was still unlikely. And then all of a sudden, 
in January of 2015, the United States Olympic Committee chose Boston over those other cities. And almost overnight, the Boston Olympics went from an impossibility to an inevitability. And we're, we're sitting there um, thinking that maybe the games weren't going to come to Boston. Turns out they were. Um, we had raised less than $10,000. We had no full-time staff and uh, no elected officials or other powerful folks who were on our side. On the Boston 2024 side, they had already raised and spent $15 million. They had six of Boston's 10 most powerful people aligned with them, including the mayor of Boston, who was a very strong advocate for the games. So we were sort of sitting there thinking, there is no way that we have a chance to now change this conversation. But I think we had two things going for us over the course of 2015. Well, really three. One is that this was always a bad bid and a bad idea. And some of the information that the boosters put in that bid was just factually wrong or inconsistent with what Bostonians wanted. But two other things. One is we had uh, a media uh, group in, in Massachusetts, and I, I say that broadly in terms of the press, who were really engaged in this. And I give them in, an incredible amount of credit. Reporters at big outlets and small outlets who are digging into the details on this and taking this seriously and unearthing good information about the bid and sharing it with the public. But then most importantly, we had an engaged public. What we saw very clearly in the polling is the more people learned about this bid, the less they liked it. And we are so lucky here to have a populace in Massachusetts that cares about public policy, that wants to get things right for the city and for the region and for the state. And as they wised up to the details of this bid, they came over to our side. Uh, and so that's really the story of this is about educating the public, sharing with people and talking with people about why this bid was going to be bad for them in their futures. And once they came around to our side, they stuck. Once we got polling above 50% on our side, that is above 50% opposition, it never turned in the other direction. Um, and we had that, we had them there with us the rest of the way by the summer of 2015, it had become clear to the United States Olympic committee that the bid was just not popular enough, that they were not going to be able to extract the concessions from the public purse that they wanted uh, to make the games possible. And they decided to pull the bid back in July of 2015. Did you have to like sort of put together a spreadsheet, uh, you know, of costs and benefits? Yeah, you know, that was really part of what we did was some of the quantitative analysis. Uh, and so my background was in management consulting. I'd spent a few years at one of the big three management consulting firms and so, you know, my bread and butter there is a PowerPoint deck. And by the end of our time with No Boston Olympics, we had a, you know, 80 or 100 slide PowerPoint deck that we walked through with anyone who would listen to us. And at first, you know, it was a random state rep or a random state senator or, you know, a newspaper reporter that was willing to sit down with us. By the time June came around, we were being asked by the governor to present that PowerPoint to his full cabinet meeting. And, and um, just for those, <laughs> yeah, and don't be modest to our listeners. I just want them to know, Chris has an MBA from Harvard, and that firm he's talking about is ha happens to be one of the best in the country, Bain and Company. So let's just get out there for Chris's <laughs> modesty. You know, it's okay. Uh, but uh, I, I, I want to know, though, how hard was it, Chris, to get the, you know, get good, solid data? Like, did you have to... Uh, I, I presumably had to get some real data from the IOC, some real data from the state. Was there resistance? Were they forthcoming? What was that like? Yeah, so at first, Boston 2024 and the boosters behind it were totally unwilling to share the bid. In fact, they kept the bid completely secret 
for all of 2014, and they only shared it sort of begrudgingly in 2015 after the USOC's decision. And even when they shared it with the public, what they said was, well, we've redacted certain portions of this for competitive reasons because we don't want our competitors in Paris or Johannesburg or elsewhere to figure out what we're doing. It turns out, as, uh, um, as it developed over time, that in fact they had not just redacted some of the basic information around numbers, they had actually changed some of the information between what they shared wow. with the USOC and what they shared with the public. That didn't come out until about 48 hours before the bid died in the summer of 2015. But they, they had really done sort of a, a bait and switch on it. And um, that's unfortunate that they were sort of pushed to do that, but they felt like, I guess at the time, it was the right thing for them to do and that it wouldn't ever come out. Um, but I, I will say Boston 2024 had a real credibility problem. They really lost the faith of the public because the public started to realize that they weren't being told the truth. And it's hard for the public to be interested in writing a multi-billion dollar check to a group of guys that are just not being forthcoming about what's in the bid and what it will mean for people. I think, you know, to your question more broadly about the, the data of other games, thankfully there's been some good research on that. Uh, there's a great study at Oxford University that found that every single Olympics since 1960 has gone over budget and that the Olympics are one of the riskiest mega projects that a region can undertake, even more risky than a hydroelectric dam or a nuclear power plant or an underground tunnel for a subway. So these are really, really risky projects. They, they always go over budget. And that wasn't just going to be true of Boston. It's true of every single Olympics since 1960. You know what bothers me about the whole uh, IOC is, um, in addition to you know the, the fabrication of the, the studies that they put out on the costs, is the tremendous amount of money some of those bureaucrats in the IOC make. That's what really bothers me. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. That just, uh, it's just, it's just, just a crawd, you know, in me. It, it just really, really bothers me. What? Um, just before I leave the whole spreadsheet, Chris, when you put your model together and, and looking at, uh, you know, when you had your revenues and, ex and costs and all that, uh, are any of those uh, numbers that you could quickly share? Like, what were what were the costs going to be? What were the revenues going to be? And, and what was the loss going to be based on uh, your analysis? Well, even, even better than my analysis is the analysis that was done by a group called the Brattle Group, commissioned by the governor to sort of explore this question. And they released their findings about three or four weeks after the bid died in August of 2015. They found that at a minimum, the bid was underestimating costs by about $950 million. And that's just in what they could see over a few months of analysis. They said in their report that their expectation was that the losses would actually be higher. So that's the bare minimum is a billion dollars. To put that into context, the city of Boston's annual budget is about $2.2 billion a year. So you're talking about a massive, massive cost relative to the financial resources available to the city of Boston. And... Uh, this is yeah. This is a you know this this is at least a billion dollars and probably more uh, of costs. And and again, that's that's what the, that's the easy stuff to tell. Who knows what would have happened once the bid had been committed to, and there were all sorts of additional um, you know requirements that came up or costs that hadn't been foreseen that would have had to be paid by taxpayers. And taking a quick break to say this podcast is brought to you by Amica Auto Home and Life Insurance. 
When you call Amica, you can expect a different experience because Amica is all about customer service that goes above and beyond the ordinary. You always get the help you need when you call Amica. Visit meetamica.com slash Forbes today. And this year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Varidesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Varidesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Varidesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Varidesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns if you're not satisfied. See it for yourself at varidesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. So- A factor that seems casual is claiming tens of thousands of LGBT lives every year. Tobacco. Yes, smoking cigarettes can damage nearly every part of our bodies. So we choose to keep this life free from tobacco. This free life. Freedom to be tobacco-free. So if the cost, let's just say for sake of discussion, if the cost would have been a cool $1 billion, um, based on what you think or the report thought incremental revenue gains would have been, if any, from hosting the Olympics, what would the loss have been? Yeah, so the so to be more clear on that, the, the cost estimates are somewhere around, you know, six to seven billion dollars of costs. And the revenue you get in from things like ticket sales and uh, you know, money that the IOC gives you is is more in like the four to five billion dollar range. So that's where you get your sort of one to two billion dollar oh, loss. Man. So the loss it, would have been like half the size of the budget. That's that, that's operating. Uh, that's operating budget. Um, and, <clears throat> wow. and then, you know, then your question is, well, what about sort of the broader economic benefits? And and that's where you start to realize that the the Olympics are actually not an economic bonanza. Again, we've got hotel rooms that are 95 percent booked in the summer. We've got a city that is already packed to the gills with tourism and economic activity. And so for every every tourist that's coming in for the games, you've got another that's saying, look, I'm going to stay away from Boston this summer. I'm not going to walk the Freedom Trail or visit Boston Common or visit the Museum of Fine Arts because I want to stay away from the chaos of the Olympics. Right. Not right. to mention the impacts on businesses in the city, right? So you're essentially shutting down your city for three weeks and handing it over to the IOC. That means that all the normal economic activity that happens in a place like downtown Boston with our financial firms, investment firms, with uh, any number of, of entities, our hospitals that are operating in downtown Boston, they effectively shut down. And every Olympic host says that to the businesses in the host city. It happened in London. It happened in Rio. The government basically says, shut down your company for three weeks. And no one accounts for those negative economic costs when you know they're adding up all of the wonders that an Olympics will bring. While all this was going on, Chris, were you ever sort of, uh, did they ever try to intimidate you, threaten you, anything like that, any of uh, uh, you or any of the folks working with you? Well, you know, there's some really interesting conversations, and I, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on those folks because, you know, I think they they believe they were doing the right thing for Boston. But uh, there is uh, there's a, there was an interesting conversation that happened between one of our allies, a guy named Professor Andrew Zimbalist, who's at Smith College. In yes, I know the him. World's 
one of the world's experts on uh, sports economics, where he got a call from the chairman of Boston 2024, and the chairman actually offered Professor Zimbalist a job with Boston 2024 to try to move him over from our side to their side. And obviously, we weren't going to be able to compete economically um, with hiring Professor Zimbalist. In fact, we never had a full-time employee on our team the entire time. We spent less than $10,000 on our entire effort. So, um, you know, there were some interesting and, and awkward conversations like that as they were trying to sort of figure out our stance on this and whether we could be sort of persuaded to come to their side in some way or encouraged to, you know, maybe strike a deal with them. Um, and look, we weren't trying to be obstructionist in the sense that we, we were reasonable actors in this and we, we knew we were up against uh, a really tough environment and we were willing to sort of ask for some, some compromises um, but they, the Boston 2024 24 folks were never really willing to come to the table because they knew if they conceded too much, the IOC would never agree. And the best example of that is the taxpayer guarantee. One thing we said to Boston 2024 is, if you want to make us more comfortable, if you want to lessen our opposition, then just reject the taxpayer guarantee and have mm -hmm. the mayor say he's not going to sign it. And someone else needs to be responsible for the overruns, but not the city. Yeah, fat and chance for, with that. <laughs> exactly right. The, yeah. That's the response we got from Boston 2024 right. is we'd love to do it, but the IOC is never going to go for it. And so if we say that, they're not going to pick Boston. And our goal is that they pick Boston. And, for and those, so that shows the inflexibility. Right, right. Yeah, it also shows that they didn't believe their own numbers as far as I'm concerned. Uh, for those who want to read more about this particular tale, uh, uh, Chris's work, on the No Boston Olympics. He's got a fantastic book called No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Truth. I, I want to uh, get your opinion, Chris, on the Tokyo Summer Olympics in 2020, where the cost started out to be around $6 billion and is now hitting $13 billion almost. Uh, it, that's U.S. dollars. Um, and also the L.A. Games in 2028. Do you have any uh, uh, sense of whether those Olympics are going to also show big losses? Yeah, so I think Tokyo is a classic example where the host city just overbid for these games. And they told the public that this was going to cost $6 billion, while at the same time, behind closed doors, they were making promises to the IOC about more extravagant venues and uh, better television sight lines and things like that. An example of that is they, they want to put the rowing in the middle of Tokyo Harbor. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to take a trash dump in Tokyo Harbor. They're going to basically cap it, and then they're going to build stands on top of it and have the rowing exist there at the cost of something like five or $600 million. And this facility is going to essentially be used once for the Olympics and never used again. At the same time, they've got a perfectly good rowing facility a couple hundred miles away outside of Tokyo that is already Olympic standards and can work fine. The problem, of course, is that when you're thinking about the television viewing and you're thinking about the proximity for fans to the to the games, you know, Tokyo Harbor is a much more attractive place to be than some place that's 200 miles away. And so they're actually forcing the organizers to stick with that plan, despite the fact that it's adding somewhere close to half a billion dollars of costs just for this short-term event. That's an example of the kind of crazy outcomes that you get for the Olympics. And, and Tokyo has done that, and I think we're going to see that with, with many additional hosts. Now, Los Angeles is a, is a bit of an interesting example. And frankly, we would give Los Angeles some credit for the 1984 games that it was actually a financially successful games. 
And people think, well, that's because L.A. is just really good at putting on a show and they have all these venues. And that's part of the story with L.A. But more importantly, in 1984, Los Angeles was the only bidder for the IOC auction. The only other bidder that had been in the race was Tehran, Iran, which had to drop out because of the Iranian revolution. And Mike, you and I know that if we show up for an auction and you're the only bidder at that auction, <laughs> you're going to get a really good deal. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so that's what LA got in 1984. Is they basically said to the IOC, we're going to do things our way and you have no choice because you don't have any other bidders, including the only time in modern Olympic history where the taxpayer guarantee has been rejected. And the wow. mayor refused to sign that contract, but was still awarded the games. Who was the mayor so, at that time? I don't remember. I know Uberoth ran that, right? That's sort I, of... I, yeah, Uberoth was, was seen as the hero there, um, but he really took advantage of a strong negotiating position from, from day one. Um, and he was, you know, he was actually given Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1984, but it's not for what he did in 1984. It's what, what situation he found himself in in 1978 as the only bidder in an auction. So, so look, you know, L.A. has been awarded the 2028 games coming out of this process, partly because so few cities have been interested. Mm. For the 2024 games, only Paris and Los Angeles were interested in bidding. And the IOC said, shoot, if we say yes to one and no to the other, we might have no one show up in 2028. And so they struck a deal behind closed doors. It's a very unique thing in their process where they said, look, we'll give 2024 to Paris and 2024, 2028 to Los Angeles. So Los Angeles had some more power to negotiate I'll give them credit as an example of this. Instead of proposing a new Olympic village at the cost of one to $2 billion, they said, look, we're just going to put athletes in our dorms at UCLA and USC. And that's the right decision for them to make. It takes a lot of the cost off the table. But at the same time, LA did agree to sign the taxpayer guarantee. So Mayor Garcetti has signed on the dotted line and said he's willing to put Los Angeles taxpayers at risk if there are cost overruns. So as he's thinking about running for governor of California or running for president of the United States, he is really hoping that he doesn't see those cost overruns that have hit every other city that's hosted the Olympics. Wow. Well, and once you know, I think I may be mistaken, but I think Atlanta in 1996 is also have said to make a profit. Was was that because these uh, circumstances were similar to Los Angeles in uh, in the 80s? Well, Mike, you're falling into a classic trap there, which is that every city that hosts the Olympics says they. <laughs> okay, I'll, so, I'll cross that one off. Atlanta did not make a profit. <laughs> Sochi, Russia claims that they made a profit off right. the Olympics, despite okay. the fact that they spent fifty-three billion dollars for something that produced a few billion in revenue. So it's it's what happens here is there's funny accounting, right? All so right. the Atlanta bid committee says that they ran a profit. But they don't include the costs that were pushed onto taxpayers in Atlanta and the city of Atlanta for covering things that weren't originally proposed. Ah, An example of that is they got hundreds of millions of dollars in federal funding that they don't account for in their budget when they say they made a small profit. How nice. They just say, oh, that's part of the profit. But, you know, look, <laughs> if, if we are, you know, I certainly know if I ran my organization with a couple hundred extra million dollars from the federal government, I'd run it with a surplus too, right? That's how things work. Um, that's what happened in Atlanta. And look, I'm not taking anything away from Atlanta. It's a great, you know, nice regional city. It's not a Boston. It's not a not a New York or a Los Angeles. But uh, they, you know, they had their games in 1996. It's it's hard to say that it really transformed the economy of Atlanta. In fact, when you look at the the graph of jobs in Atlanta over that era, it was pretty much on an upward trend anyway. In the 90s, there was a little blip for about two months around the Olympics. 
and then it went right back to the same trend line. So this hosting the games did not change the economic fortunes of Atlanta. It might, might have made them feel good about you know, hosting a big international event, which they weren't used to doing, but it it was not really a game changer in the way that they like to think of it. The 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 accounting for the Olympics brings me to that old Abbott and Costello line, you know, where Costello says he wants to go shopping at a store, even though he doesn't have any money because it's a sale. And then when he saves enough money from the sale, he's going to use those savings to buy everything, you know. I, um, hey, uh, before I let you go, I, I, I know you're real busy. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I mean, so much knowledge you've dispensed. Uh, I, I love that. Um, wh- how can people follow you? I mean, you got a Twitter handle or anything you could share with us? Sure. So if people want to learn more about No Boston Olympics, our website is still up, nobostonolympics.org. And obviously, I encourage folks to check out the book that Professor Zimbalist and I wrote on what happened in Boston and uh, why that matters for what's happening around the world. But also love to engage with people personally. So my Twitter handle is C D E M P C C Dempsey. Uh, would love to connect with folks there and hear what they think about the podcast or anything that we did in Boston, whether we did the right thing or the wrong thing, or still remains to be seen. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the Sports Money Podcast. Really appreciate it. Mike, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.